Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true democratic principles. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. We're going to get into an interview pretty soon with Russell Daniels, the digital communication manager at an organization known as Open Primaries. But first, I want to divert just a little bit into something different. I want to talk about my recent concerns over journalism. Over the last couple decades, I've personally noticed how journalism has somewhat degraded. Um, And I believe that there are several reasons for this, media consolidation being one of them. You have fewer media companies. There's also commercialization of the news. And as a result, you're getting a lot of loss of trust. And perhaps just as tragic, there's been a loss of local coverage, local news coverage in both papers and in TV, and um, also politicization of our news. News organizations seem to be taking sides on the political spectrum. And actually, if to go back a little bit further here, there was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, which was put forth by the FCC uh, back in the mid part of the 20th century, where they talked about the fact that uh, any sort of political uh, coverage was supposed to be, quote, fair and balanced as, as a matter of government policy. Now, I know a lot of new news organizations use the term fair and balanced, but they really aren't, at least not in any sense of what we originally thought of as being fair and balanced from what's called the Fairness Doctrine. Um, Unfortunately, the Fairness Doctrine was thrown out in the 1980s, and so thereafter, uh, news organizations started to become highly politicized. Anyways, as a result of all this, there's been a loss of revenue at the newsroom level. So um, newsrooms have to still produce news, so they end up producing things like um, perhaps just publishing news releases that are out there verbatim without any editing or anything. Um, There's also a loss of investigative reporting. And uh, if you've, like me, if you've ever tuned into the Huffington Post, as I used to years ago, it's a fairly liberal product, uh, fairly liberal production. But setting that aside, there was a lot of investigative journalism which took place in the Huffington Post. I've been very disappointed the last few years I've been reading it because it's nothing but a bunch of tweets, basically. They're reporting on what people are tweeting. So, um, but what's really brought this to my mind recently has been this uh, recent Israeli-Palestine conflict taking place over the last few weeks, and that has been on my mind lately because I suspect at some point that we are losing some perspective on what's really going on there. I think it's it's somewhat one-sided. I think the Israeli side is being presented fairly well, honestly, you know, but there's no nothing being presi- nothing being presented for the Palestinian side. And at first I thought it was just my impression. Maybe I'm not getting the right news. Maybe I'm looking at things wrong. But my suspicions were recently confirmed when I read an open letter to Canadian newsrooms uncovering Israel-Palestine. This is an open letter that was published on May 14th and was signed by about 2,000 people, including both Canadians and, and Americans. Most of them were journalists. So I'm going to read this letter to you verbatim so that you can get an idea of some of the things I've been concerned about regarding journalism. Here we go. It's called An Open Letter to Canadian Newsrooms Uncovering Israel-Palestine. The Middle East is complicated. We need to hear both sides. Everyone has a lot of emotions about this. These are just some of the excuses news editors have provided to Canadian journalists trying to cover the escalating violence against Palestinians. The lack of nuanced Canadian media coverage of forced expulsions and indiscriminate airstrikes over the last few days 
which have so far killed at least 137 Palestinians, including 36 children, has been disappointing. This was the number of casualties at the time of the writing of this letter. As journalists, we cannot selectively choose which international human rights violations to report on. This past year, Canadian media has reckoned with and acknowledged the lack of diversity and nuance in covering issues of human rights. The work has just started. Our industry rallied to properly cover the Black Lives Matter protests after the brutal killing of George Floyd and the disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on marginalized communities at home and around the world. We are learning to report on indigenous experiences and issues in a nuanced way that recognizes the long historical impact of colonialism. Why shouldn't Palestinians be afforded the same nuance? According to the United Nations and countless human rights organizations around the world, including ones based within Israel, what's happening in the occupied Palestinian territories is, quote, a a grave breach of international law. Some groups believe the attacks amount to an ethnic cleansing. It should be covered as such. Dispossession is not complicated. Violence against innocent civilians and children is not complicated. Police aggression and state-sanctioned racism is not complicated. Journalists cover these issues all the time. So why do we tiptoe around coverage of Israel and Palestinians? It's time for Canadian newsrooms to carry out the necessary due diligence and report on this region with nuance and context. For that to happen, Canadian newsrooms will have to first acknowledge their failings. Anyone who has worked in a Canadian newsroom has encountered the reluctance or resistance to covering Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Canadian style guides still ban the use of the word Palestine in coverage. This has led to many corrections over the years. Racialized journalists have reported feeling overly scrutinized or even censored after every story pitch on this region. The unfair standard applied to these story pitches has only added to the burden they feel in diversifying Canadian media coverage. Unfortunately, newsroom leaders are skittish, fearing the deluge of complaints that often follows coverage. The deep reluctance to cover the ongoing nature of the Israeli occupation leads to urgent breaking news coverage that never includes the context that surrounds the issue. This content almost always centers around Israeli politicians and organizations and representatives of the Israeli government and military. Rarely are Palestinian voices ever centered or featured. A recent Al Jazeera column highlighted only two Canadian publications reported on a new Human Rights Watch report that found Israel was guilty of decades-long crimes against humanity against Palestinians. That would be the Canadian press and the Globe and Mail. Mainstream Israeli groups tracking human rights abuses against Palestinians like Bet Salem have done the same. The CBC, Canada's public broadcaster, did not have any coverage on the HRW report. Derek Stoffel, the CBC's world news editor and former Middle East correspondent, explained the silence by saying that his newsroom, quote, did not have the reporter resources on this day to to vote to it. We've all heard this before, but the deaths of innocent people anywhere in the world, let alone a highly contentious region where many Canadians have vested interest, merits in-depth, fair, and balanced coverage. Our ask is simple, that all the tenets of journalism should apply to Canadian coverage of occupied Palestinian territories moving forward. Fair and balanced coverage should include historical and social context, reporters with knowledge of the region, and, crucially, Palestinian voices.
So that's the open letter to the Canadian newsrooms on covering Israel-Palestine. It's interesting to note that The Intercept, which is an award-winning news organization, in an article released on May 20th, says that to date, at least three journalists who signed that open letter were subsequently taken off of reporting on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. It's interesting how reporting on the news can sometimes be very, very political. And speaking of being political, we're going to talk now about open primaries. I recorded an interview with Russell Daniels on Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. Here it is. We're now talking with Russell Daniels, the digital communication manager at an organization known as Open Primaries. Now, what is Open Primaries? Well, stated plainly on their website at openprimaries.org, quote, no Americans should be required to join a political party to exercise their right to vote. Now, this is a pretty profound statement. It basically means that in many states, you must join a political party in order to vote. Now, I know that sounds confusing, Uh, because in the November elections, you don't need to show your party membership to vote. But the problem is that in those November elections, the people that appear on your ballot have already been voted upon. I mean, that's how they get their name on the ballot in the first place. What I'm talking about here is the primary elections. These are the elections that determine the candidates that appear on your ballot. The primary elections often take place months before the November election, And if you live in a heavily gerrymandered district, the political district lines have already been drawn in such a way as to, you know, sort of virtually guarantee what party prevails in the election. So therefore, your November vote really doesn't matter. I mean, the winner is, for the most part, preordained. These gerrymandered districts are used to select your state senators, your state representatives, your U.S. congressional representative, and ultimately the U.S. president. So how can this be? I mean, you know, don't we live in a democracy? Well, let's talk with Russell Daniels and get the story straight from an organization that knows all about the defects in our current voting system insofar as primaries are concerned. So, Russell, uh, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Good, good. You know, I tried to hook our audience by saying that your vote doesn't count, and I know that's not entirely true, but it is at least partially true, especially if you live in a state that does not support open primaries. So let's get our definition straight. I mean, before we go any further, can you tell us in a nutshell what an open primary is and what what issue it tries to solve? Yeah, so a fully open primary um, is a primary election that doesn't require voters to be affiliated with a political party uh, in order to vote. Um, now, in terms of the system that we like, uh, like a, uh, that California has, um, which is a top two completely open nonpartisan primary, the way that works, everyone votes on the same day on the same ballot. Um, and then the top two vote getters move on to the general election. You're not um, forcing anyone to join a party. You're not giving them just a choice of Democrats or Republicans. You're giving them the full carte blanche um, options. And then the top two vote getters, uh, regardless of party, move on to the general election to have um, uh, everyone weigh in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's, that's, that is a system that California has, that Washington state has, uh, Louisiana has um, with slight variation. Um, and then now um, Alaska, uh, as of 2020, has adopted a top four um, uh, open nonpartisan primary 
uh, combined with ranked choice voting, actually. So mm -hmm. those four states have have like the most, um, I would say, open nonpartisan system. Mm -hmm. um, from there, there are states. Uh, every state is different, obviously. Um, but there are states that have semi-open, which would be um, voters can request the ballot of the political party for whose candidate they want to vote on, uh, as you mentioned. Um, so they receive a party specific ballot. Mm -hmm. okay. um, from there, we get a little more closed or semi-closed, which is unaffiliated voters um, can participate by registering into a party on election day. So they are uh, so they are forced to join a party on election day, and sometimes they can join the party for a day and then then leave. Sometimes they're locked in for a little bit longer. It just varies state to state. And then there is the uh, fully closed, which uh, would be like a New York situation or Pennsylvania or Florida. Um, which are big states, but they are fully closed and, and the rules can be in New York where I'm talking to you from. Mm -hmm. um, I think they've changed it recently. So the lockbox, you're not locked in as long. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember in 2016, for instance, people were having to register, you know, let's say a lot of people wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders and they weren't um, they weren't registered into the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. They had to register to the Democratic Party before any debates even happened wow. for the for the Democrat. So so it, it does vary state to state, but that there are states with completely closed, which is very limiting. Um, and that often right now in 2020, that equates to about 30 million people who are locked out of voting uh, in primaries completely in America. That well, that's we'll go back just a little bit now. You talked about the top uh, two or the top four, or top five primaries. You can potentially have let's say in California, top two, you could actually have two Republicans voting or running yeah. against each other in the November election. And that's interesting. Yeah. And we've, um, you know, that's a, a lot of times that's used as a, as a negative thing. Um, um, we have seen some of that happen in California, not a lot, but it has happened a few times. Um, and an interesting thing that happens when that does happen. Uh, I think of a, a case from a few years back, mm -hmm. um, where uh, I think uh, it was Swalwell and, and Stark, um, I think were the names. Um, but but you know what often happens is you let's say you have uh, it's a lot of times Democrats because it's California. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have an area that's so Democrat, a Democrat is always going to win that area. Mm -hmm. So you oftentimes had a candidate who had been winning elections for decades. They hadn't didn't have to run a real campaign. They automatically were, were going to win against any Republican that was that was going to go up against them, and so what you saw in some of these cases was a, a party-picked candidate who had been winning, not having to run real elections or campaigns for for decades, mm -hmm. and then someone who the party said, "Hey, you don't run against this person," and they ran anyways, and they uh, actually went out and talked to not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans that do live in that area that mm -hmm. had a smaller representation. And, uh, we've seen some of those candidates win some of those candidates who had less, um, less allegiance to, to party leaders. So uh, that's an interesting thing with, with, the, with a system like that, where, um, you're not guaranteeing who can win. And sometimes if it's two Democrats or two Republicans, that doesn't mean they're going to be the same kind of Democrats or the same kind of Republicans. Yeah. There uh, tends to be differences. And it really does then reward the people that go out and talk to and try to represent their constituents more. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I would also think that would that would affect um, the negative campaign ads, right? I mean, if you have two Republicans or two Democrats running against each other, um, they can only take so many shots at each other, right? Because they're yeah, that, kind of on the same team. Yeah. 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 If you're going to be negative and mean, you have to make it be more about um, very specific things rather than just yeah. just their party. Yeah. So the semi-open primary, I know we were talking briefly before we before we started the podcast here. Uh, I live in Missouri, and we have, I guess, what you would call a semi-open primary. And um, what happens in my case when I go in to vote is the first thing they ask me at the polling place is, do you want a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot? And I'm like, well, I'd like to have one of each. <laughs> so it, it still kind of confines my ability to choose um, you know, the people that represent the parties, because no matter who wins, you know, in my case, um, I'm heavily gerrymandered to be Republican, you know, and I'm not a wow. Republican. So but I'd still like to have some say so in it. Right. So, yeah, a- absolutely. Um, it, they definitely are are limiting still. I, I you know, I, I it's take it over a fully closed system, but it, it still is limiting. It still means that you're having to pick um a party and uh and that that does limit the choice and does limit the options and then people are are trying to think of okay well how do i want to go about this and and do this and uh, it often doesn't represent how a lot of americans feel a lot of us um a lot of us want the full options we want full full choice and um -hmm. um, yeah so primaries Let's go back in history a little bit, because primaries and and political parties were never written into the Constitution. They are never they have never have been in a Constitution. And and we know that political parties started almost before the ink was dry on the Constitution. But primaries Mm -hmm. are a little bit newer. Um, Yeah. Why were they started and And what problems did they originally intend to solve? Yeah, well, they came out of the progressive era. in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, there was a real push um, uh, by people to reform the political process uh, that re- that led to the establishment of primaries. This was coming out of like a lot of things were just being decided in back rooms by, mm-hmm. by party leaders, by politicians, and uh, you know sometimes politicians and criminals, things like that. So there was a push from from Americans to hey, let's make this more democratic. Let's make this more inclusive. And this uh, really came out in the early uh, 1900s, um, especially after uh, World War One. Um, and so uh, that's that's kind of what we saw. There were initially a way to make primaries more democratic, to have people weigh in more, and and to hear from Americans more. Mm-hmm. So uh, they came from a from a good place of 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 how can we um, represent American people more fully and 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 have. Uh, less things being decided just by party leaders mm-hmm. um, and politicians. Uh, so that's really how they came to be. Then did it, I guess it solved that problem. Um, you know, I understand also Robert LaFollette, uh, uh, Fighting Bob yes. LaFollette, they called yeah. him. One of my yeah. personal heroes in that from that era um, was Wisconsin, instrumental in right? pushing it. Yeah, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. He, was, yeah. he was a governor and then I think he was senator after that or something like that. So. Yeah. So I guess it solved the problem at the time, but but I guess 
there was, did they not realize this was going to be an issue or was it not an issue back then too? I, you know, I, I think as we've gone on, a lot of things have happened um, where slowly, but surely over time, um, uh, the, the two major parties especially have, have taken more and more control over, over the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was an opening up of, of, okay, we're doing this, we're creating some more transparency, some more um, inclusion. And then over time, um, the two major parties have figured out ways to then kind of take in the reins a bit more and take more control over the process. So, you know, you've seen, um, like we just described the the varying degrees of how open those primaries are yeah mm-hmm. uh, you know you have yeah. some states uh, new york for instance where you can you have closed primary so you figure out a way okay well that eliminates three and a half million people in in just one state alone from participating right. in primaries yeah. so uh, there's that then like you said before there's gerrymandering so we have the politicians uh drawing their own district lines and deciding okay who am i going to control who votes for me. So so over time, uh, they've they've the parties have gotten more and more control over the process. And that has led to um, being pretty easy to manipulate um, who can vote for you and how many people can vote for you. Yeah. And it also it, it creates a more extremist environment, right? I mean, because because a lot of times the people who are motivated to vote during the primaries um, are going to be, I guess, for lack of a better term, but more extremist than others, right? Yeah. Well, you know, not always, but yeah, it's, 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 um, I I mean, it's not always extremists even, or party loyalists, you know, Mm -hmm. um, who, uh, are, are, you know, this is who I'm being presented with and who I'll I'll vote for. Um, but yeah, you're, you're rewarding, um, that, I mean, like you said before, or you had mentioned, um, it really is though. I think, I think, a recent figure was about 80% of Congress is being elected by less than 10% of, 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 the of our voters. Yeah. So that's a huge disparity in, 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 in people picking who is, who is making these big decisions for us. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and, and that percent of people are often the um, most extreme or the most uh, loyal to party. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of drives them away from the center, which is where yeah. the independents are landing these days. The 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 so-called well, you've heard of the Gallup poll recently, where they said that fifty percent of the people, it's between forty-five and fifty percent of the people that they polled do not identify with either party. So, um, those yeah, are the and people. I would yeah. Go ahead. I would only add to that is that you know yeah that that's a that is a a, a big major number, um, to you know. To get to 50% of, of gal, you know, finding that 50% of people identify as politically independent, um, and and I would also say that not that doesn't always mean that they are directly in the middle of things. Uh, being right. an independent, yeah. you can be all across the board politically in spectrum. There's, I'd say, more people than being moderate. More, it's more so people saying I don't buy into uh, either of these major parties. I I, I don't want to belong to that i've seen how toxic that has become uh i've seen how um that is not helping it right now. it's really a frustration with we can see that mm-hmm. it's harder to get things done it's harder to work on anything um if in this in this partisan uh system so i, I would say more so than even people feeling like they are are moderates or in the middle it's more so people opting out of um but wanting to belong to a political party. Yeah. 
Yeah, and one thing you stated that state that is stated on the website um, is this sentence, which I thought was pretty profound. It says closed primaries are the biggest form of voter suppression in the country. And you talked earlier about 30 million people that fall into that category that are essentially not being able to vote, I guess, right, to, to, to put the candidates on the ballot. Yeah, um, it, it's not often it's not. You know, right now we're seeing so many different forms of voter suppression that are very obvious, Uh, you know, legislation being passed all around the country that targets people and um, different groups. And uh, that's that is usually what people associate with voter suppression, Mm -hmm. those types of things. This is is so so uh, bad because it's so ingrained into just how we do politics. And a lot of times it's it, people wouldn't consider it voter suppression. You're like, oh, well, that's how it's always been. Yeah. And yeah. and and that that is the the you know that can be changed. And it's just working to to open more people's eyes on on that. That's something that just because this is how we've done it or how a state has done it for for years doesn't mean that it's not voter suppression. You know, if you're forcing people to pay for public primaries. And then you're saying that you can't, they can't vote in them. That is a form of voter suppression um, uh, because the parties, they don't pay for these primaries that yeah. the taxpayers do. So, so it's, it's absolutely a form of voter suppression. And I think it, it just gets a pass or goes unnoticed because it's how we've done it. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it part of our work and, and a big portion of our work is just trying to help people uh, open their eyes and see that that is um, that is voter suppression and, and and it can be changed. Yeah, you yeah, that, you really raise my passion with that because it seems so silly to me that we the voters pay for these primaries to be run and they're run by private organizations. That's what political parties are. They're basically private industries. We pay for it, and yet, you know, we can't participate. Even in Missouri, where we have these semi-open primaries, when they ask me if I want a Democratic ballot or a, a Republican ballot, that's like, okay, that's fifty percent of it that I've that I've not been, that I'm not able to use that I've paid for, but I'm still not able to to vote yeah. on that other side. So that, yeah, I was, I'm surprised there's no lawsuits or anything like that that are being brought up. That you know, we're there. There. So we we were part of a lawsuit um, that. Uh, started happening in New Mexico um, and it lost some funding. And obviously these things are very costly. Mm-hmm. So um, it lost funding. It wasn't completed, but we're still developing uh, that case um, because that is, that is um, absolutely. We think uh, if we can find the right way of, in the right state and the right timing of things, that is absolutely um, something that's being pursued is, is to, mm-hmm. um, argue that that it is that yeah. it shouldn't be illegal to charge people and make them pay for things they're not able to participate in. Yeah. Yeah. Well that that's a good angle. It's um it's it's one of many angles. And speaking of that, um there you obviously to uh, to push or advocate for a particular primary uh, approach within the states um, you have to work with the established parties and the Republicans and the Democrats. So how do you get them? Uh, these are the state level lawmakers. How do you or can you get them or, or what success have you had in getting them to advocate for open primaries? You know, um, in the 10 years that I've worked uh, in this in this kind of world, um, 
it, it's it's shifted a lot. I would say, um, you know, ten years ago, it was it was very rare to uh, to work with uh, established politicians or politicians at all mm-hmm. in in this in this world. It was it was it was it was very. Um, it was very difficult. They, they, people were, you know, that's just not where people's heads were. Right. I would say since 2016, there's been a, a pretty big shift in terms of awareness and in terms of, of, of people coming on board in a more mainstream way, um, where, you know, there was a lot of tension, obviously, in the 2016 presidential election around it. Mm-hmm. And, and now when we get to 2020, you're seeing, or 2021 now, you're seeing, um, for instance, you're seeing people from the Trump kind of camp uh, mm-hmm. threaten um, uh, Republicans that don't toe the party line, that don't sure. come on board, and say yeah. we're going to primary you. So there's a real, it's a, it's a conversation happening at the mainstream level that wasn't happening before, and that has brought more politicians and more people into the fold in a in a in a way that uh has been really interesting to see because yeah it doesn't really for a lot of people it goes against their interests in terms of uh they must prefer to have to not run as competitive elections and um kind of mm-hmm. choose who gets to vote for them um but a lot of people uh we, we've seen want to do the right thing and they and they 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 want to they don't want their hands tied when they're you know it's this frustration of getting in and then being like well i can't do anything i i I did all this work to to uh to get here to do this to represent my community and then i can't get anything done where and so so there are there is people and politicians out there that we are meeting that are saying like i really want to do stuff do productive things for my community and my constituents. And uh, in order for that to happen, I, I, I want a less partisan system. I want a system that encourages um, uh, parties and people to work together. And so, um, you know, a, a recent one that comes to mind is uh, Chloe Maxman, who is uh, a senator, state senator in uh, Maine. Mm-hmm. She's been a big advocate for LD231 in Maine. We have um, uh, a lot of people that have that have come on board. Um, uh, and it's interesting too, we've seen some people who have kind of retired from politics that are now saying like, hey, this this really is, you know, I think of in Pennsylvania, two of the former, um, um, two of former heads of the Republican and Democratic party are uh, basically on a speaking tour doing, talking about, uh, this is what needs to happen. Pennsylvania should have open primaries. So it, it, it is an interesting thing where there's definitely been a shift in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's, I would say there's still a lot of politicians very opposed to it, but there has been a shift in terms of, 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 of mm-hmm. more people coming on board. And, and another thing too, is um, it used to be, you could be more blatant and just say, no, I support closed primaries. It's not as, as, as um, it's not as, uh, some, there's a little uh, more pressure around mm-hmm. it now where it, it doesn't look as good if you're like just openly saying that you, you support closed primaries. So, mm-hmm. so even if, so, yeah. so especially in the democratic party, they have to be a little bit like, they're a little more cagey about it. So, um, so yeah. it's interesting. That is interesting, because I you, you you did def, you definitely sparked a memory in my mind about um, 
it, you know, Trump actually using the word primary as a verb saying, you know, we're going to primary you out of in, this thing. In the January 6th speech. Yeah, that yeah. was a that was a big moment. And, and they've since been threatening it too to, to many things. So that has been interesting to see because it's it really has highlighted what an issue this is. Yeah. Where if you're saying you're telling forcing people to to agree with you and saying, if you don't agree with me as a party leader, then you're going to lose your thing and we're going to make sure you lose your thing. That that really highlights the issue going on here. Yeah. People should be able to represent their constituents in, in, in the way that they feel fit. And it shouldn't be coming from party leadership, how you think and how you feel. Yeah. I know if, if I were a representative or a senator, I would take that as a threat. And so I would definitely be um, willing to advocate for open primaries to say, yeah. you can't threaten me like that because, you know, we're going to have open primaries here and maybe, you know, top two or top four, or top five. Uh, that would really sort of uh, dilute the the threat of being out primaried. Yeah. 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 Let me see the um, so. How are you working? How are you engaging with the lawmakers on a state level? Is it just sort of a lobbying sort of effort? Yeah, well, I would say so. Our organization, you know, uh, we work with activists and uh, uh, politicians and supporters all across in all 50 states. And so generally we'll have campaigns or uh, things pop up where we can then um, kind of guide and talk with and 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 help connect people, um, and that that's that's what. So this past year, I would say um, has has first of all we had three different initiatives on the ballot in 2020. So we had um, St. Louis, mm -hmm. um, which passed um, uh, uh, primary approval Saint voting City. Yeah. combo, um, and uh, we had Alaska which was like, like I mentioned, the top four open primary uh, with ranked choice voting and also a, a dark money clause. Um, it was a combo three thing and uh, that passed as well. So those two things passed in 2020, which is very exciting. And then we had another big campaign in Florida, which would have been the top two nonpartisan primary. And uh, that got 57% of the vote, but needed 60%. Um, mm. So it just failed, uh, but it, it, it what was interesting about that is that it got more votes than Trump or Biden oh, in Florida. Wow. People wow. voted for for it to pass, but it did need a 60% um, mm -hmm. and it only got 57%, which was a bummer um, because there was a lot of support around it, but also a huge pushback um, from both parties in Florida to make sure it didn't pass. Um, and and um, so, so, you know, it's working on connecting activists and guiding and offering support to the campaigns where we can. Um, and then in the new year, it's been a lot of, um, there's been so many things popping up uh, all across the country um, for efforts to close primaries. Um, so in those cases, it's, it's going in, it's, it's, it's getting activists and people to write letters to the editor to um, go on, um, media things to talk about it, to find reporters who can, can speak out against it. So it's a, it's a lot of, so that has happened in Louisiana, um, in Missouri, there was a, there was a push again to close primaries. And a lot of the times those things don't necessarily get as much attention, but, but it's something that we monitor closely because there's been a lot of efforts, uh, since November to, to close primaries, um, yeah. in states. None of them have, have, have gotten traction. Luckily we've been able to 
to uh, organize and, and, and shut down a lot of them. But uh, that's part of the work, too. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't surprise me about Missouri. They, they keep pushing things like right to work here, and that's been going on for decades now. And consistently, the people keep voting against it, and the legislator keeps bringing it up again. So what yeah. you're saying about you know pushing for closed primaries, uh, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. I, I would like to be surprised, but unfortunately, unfortunately I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned Alaska before, and that, Alaska has always kind of— uh, intrigued me because I always thought it was you know hyper conservative, and yet here in the last election, uh, they they voted for ranked choice voting. They voted for open top five primaries, um, and as you say, they had some um, legislation uh, against dark money, which is uh, really really progressive in a sense. And so, um, they're, how they're a very I would classify them as a very independent state. There there I think over fifty percent of people there are are independent, oh. are, are not two major parties. So they have a big, large portion. They really like their independence there. Uh, they really are, um, they and they used to have an open primary. Um, mm -hmm. I think it went away about 20 years ago. So so it, it wasn't, it was something that they had had and then, um, then it was taken away from them and they had a closed primary there. So I think there was a lot of people, there were, it was still fresh enough with a lot of people there where they remembered Mm -hmm. having the ability to vote for however they wanted for whoever they wanted and um uh so so it is uh, i think you know a lot of times uh associated with being a republican state but but there's a lot of independence there and there and, and there's a lot of um we should be able to do whatever we want to do there well so, you know, that's uh, a yeah. that's a good selling point actually because i i never thought about it that way because I, I i used the word progressive before but that's actually not necessarily true it's it's the fact that they uh, have a very independent spirit which um which pushes for these things for you know open yeah. top five and right choice voting and so on yeah so uh, what about ranked choice voting, though? Is that is that something that, it, to, to me, Nick, I, I, well, I read the book from uh, Gail Porter, I mean, Gail, um, who's it, Catherine Gail and Michael Porter, uh, called The Politics Industry, and they advocate heavily for open top five primaries, but also mm -hmm. marrying it to ranked choice voting. Uh, they think that, that that is the essential combination that must be um, forged in every state in order to have a open democracy. Um, so what about ranked choice voting? Is that something that open primaries is focused on at all, or is it just um, so, to open primaries? Yeah. Um, so we're, um, you know, there's a lot of reform groups and things that, you know, they have their thing mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're, and the, the, they really commit to do that. I'd say we're a bit more open to um, what a state, what a community needs and wants. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're um, for instance, the Alaska coalition, that's, that is what ended up being there. The people on the ground there said, this is what we're interested in doing. We're interested in doing the top four with ranked choice voting. And, um, and then we're going to support that. We, we really want to be able to support where the momentum is and in, in terms of opening up a, a process. Uh, and so uh, we try not to get locked into saying exactly like, this is what, need to happen this is what you know mm -hmm. we really want to be open to whatever our community uh is is advocating for and whatever's happening on the ground and and it, because uh, it, it, there's you know there, there's so many things in politics where it's like oh look at this 
national organization coming into a state and telling them what they have to do. So mm-hmm. um, we really want to be conscious of that and 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 support uh, what works locally and what people are pushing for and working towards locally. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, obviously our goal is to work with the many different reform organizations and, okay. and, and people working towards and 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 forming lots of different coalitions because the other thing that we've seen is that a lot of times people in the reform world um it it can be somewhat insular and so we we really do want to be an organization that is across the board open to working with different reform groups and and hearing from them um so yeah that's what i would say you know we've we obviously we've had Catherine Gale and michael porter on a few of our calls. We really like them. We, we've worked with them a bunch of times okay. and um, hmm. we'll continue to do so. Yeah. Yeah. There are other organizations, Fair Vote, uh, Represent yeah. Us, Fix Us and so on. Yeah. And, and uh, I forgot what uh, Catherine Gale's uh, organization was. She started an organization. Uh, she's from Wisconsin as well. Yes. And yeah. So, yeah, that's... Um, if I could remember it, I'd say it. But every time I open up the microphone, my, my brain goes blank here. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> it's typical for me. So uh, we're coming up toward the end of the podcast here. This is what I would call the call to action section. Uh, how can our interested listeners learn more about open primaries and participate in local efforts? Yeah, I would say um, go to our website, openprimaries.org. Um, uh, check that out. We have a, a map there where you can see um, uh, the different state partners we have. You can also see um, uh, what type of system you have. And I would also say, if you want to, I would say sign up for our email list because you can sign up there. We don't bombard people with things. We send out a newsletter uh, once or twice um, a month, um, just giving a quick synopsis of what's happening around the country in terms of things like that. Um, or if you're interested in getting involved in in some way in your own state, you can sign up to volunteer there, and uh, we'll connect you with the right people and um, and and, and um, set yeah. you up there. So yeah, openprimaries.org. And if or if any of your listeners want to reach out directly to me, um, you can just uh, reach me at rdaniels at openprimaries.org, and I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone there. Um, right. But yeah. Good. Yeah, I learned about you guys. Um, uh, I guess I ended up on your mailing list. I saw something interesting and got on the mailing list, and um, it's really interesting. Um, in fact, you and I got in touch uh, mainly because I was interested in, in attending the um, – you had an online um, sort of a town hall. You mentioned yeah. uh, State Senator Chloe Maxim. Uh, she was on there uh, as a – I guess she's Democrat, and she was on there with a Republican, uh, Joe yeah. Kirby. Uh, you know, yeah, I wasn't able to watch it real time, but I did catch it on the reruns and, uh, it was very interesting is, is it's interesting to me how you get this support from both ends of the, both ends of the, or, or both sides of the political spectrum. I hate to say it that way because it makes it sound like there's only no, two, but I, that's the reality. But, it, it, yeah. Um, and, and, uh, that's what we're working to do because I think it, 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 it can feel like things are so partisan and people are so separate and so, and then part of the joy of, of, of doing the work that I get to do is I get to have conversations with people who, you know, Joe Kirby or Chloe Maxman, who he's a conservative from South Dakota. She's a progressive Democrat in Maine. And they have so much in common in terms of when you actually talk to them. 
um, uh, that uh, that's a lot of the conversations that I get to have. And, and, and it really does highlight the fact that this is, this is, I think the majority of Americans feel this way. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that the, uh, things have been siloed into two things for so long that it, it feels overwhelming and it feels so partisan. But I, I, I think the majority of people uh, don't like that it's that partisan and, and, and want to connect and want to uh, work on things and, and, and figure it out. So uh, yeah, so so the the virtual discussion series is a great way to come on to. We do it once a month. Uh, it's really grown over the last year. Um, we we get a couple hundred or so people every month to tune in, and uh, and we've had some fascinating conversations on there, and we're, and we're looking to keep going with that and grow it more this next year. Wonderful, yeah. Good. Well, we've been talking with Russell Daniels, the digital communication manager at an organization known as Open Primaries. Russell, uh, thank you very much for stopping by today and telling us about what exactly Open Primaries is and what the Open Primaries organization is and what they do and how people can get involved. Appreciate you stopping thank by. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. This is Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true democratic principles. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next show.